you know, for those that are still holding on to a patriarchal model or even complementarianism, do you think there really it really comes down to a, a fear of what a shift to their biblical mm. interpretation might mean for themselves, for their church, and these principles they've built their worldview on? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carlisle Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary. A historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Dr. Beth Allison Barr. Beth is the professor of history at Baylor University and the associate dean of graduate studies. She is the author of several books, including The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Dr. Barr, thank you for rejoining the conversation. Thanks for having me. It's fun to get to come to Dallas and see y'all. Well, you're now in the rarefied twofer, twofer club of the podcast. Oh, you know, well, there you are. People that I tricked into coming on twice. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see if we can get you for the third time after this. So uh, we last had you on the podcast. I interviewed you and Meredith Stone, the president of Baptist Women in Ministry, about the legacy of toxic patriarchy in the evangelical movement. And I assume since the last time we spoke, all this has been resolved. Everything. Okay. It is all that the SBC convention never (laughs) happened. It's all perfectly fine. Well, I thought it would be... 
you know, there's so much in your book that we didn't get to unpack the first time, and I'm, I'm sure you never bore of writing, you know, and talking about what you worked <laughs> so hard to produce. I thought we'd revisit some of the aspects of the book that we weren't able to touch on the first conversation. So first, take us back to the conception of this book. Um, as your research in academia mm-hmm. began to collide with your lived church experience. So there's probably two origin stories to this book. And the first one isn't when I, when I had no idea about a book. And that was during my graduate um, studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And that was the same time. It's so fascinating how this works out. I was in the PhD program at the same time that the um, SBC 2000 Baptist Faith and Message was being debated. And so I was reading, and I lived at, of course, I lived not very far from where all this was going on. And Paige Patterson was at Southeastern, and my husband was at Southeastern at the time. So we were reading and hearing and talking with all of these debates that were going on with the SBC at the same time that I was in this women's history program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill learning about the origins of patriarchy. And that was when I, you know, that's, I described that moment in the book where I suddenly realized that what the SBC was doing, what they were saying about women, was exactly the same thing that was said about women in the ancient world and the same thing that was said about women in the medieval world, etc. Um, and so that was when I began to pause and think about what was going on. So that's probably the, the origin origin of the book. Um, the book itself was born in the aftermath of 2016 when my husband um, was fired uh, from his church and the trauma of the Trump presidency. Um, and really, I just trying to figure out how I could help. And uh, it occurred to me that maybe that I already had a platform riding on the anxious bench on Patheos. And I thought maybe I could start sharing with people what I knew about, um, about women's history and the church. And so I began writing a series of blogs. The first one was called, um, uh, the first one was on Paul. I can't actually remember what I called it, but it was a series. It was something about rethinking Paul. And then the second one was called Disrupting Christian Patriarchy. And that's the one that led directly to an editor seeking, you know, reaching out to me and asking me about a book. Hmm. Small world, by the way. I grew up in Apex. Oh, you did? Uh, so, and, yeah. I uh, grew up in that area while you were at Carolina. And yeah. And brother went to Carolina, and so. Carolina is such a big place. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the cornerstones of a Christian patriarchal system is the Apostle Paul. Right. Uh, so he single-handedly supplies biblical literists and inheritance <laughs> with the ammunition they believe to discount the role of women in the church, let alone women's leadership and pastoral capabilities. As a historian, can you give us a, a better glimpse into what Paul was dealing with in the culture he mm-hmm. was living in in order to help accurately read him? Sure. Um, although, first I have to say, I think even if Paul had not written um, those texts of terror, as, as scholars call them, I think uh, people who support Christian patriarchy would have still found texts <laughs> in the Bible. Um, so we can see that how they've pivoted from Paul to Genesis to try to support. Uh, so there's been a clear move that way. And so I think they would have still found something. So um, Paul just is very convenient. Uh, so I think one of I think one of the things that 
we have done poorly with understanding the Bible is we have decided so much, and this is something that Baptists have very much insisted on throughout our history, that we can understand the Bible completely on its own terms. And while that is true, at the same time, it doesn't mean that there aren't contexts that matter. And we have tended to lean so much on being able to interpret it through our own lens that we have forgotten to place everything back in its context and to ask what did the original hearers hear? Why was this being told to them at the time? And if we do that with Paul, what we find is that um, even though I, I would not argue that Paul is a feminist, I think that would be an anachronistic label, I actually don't think Paul was all that interested in um, egalitarianism or pushing women forward. I think Paul was practical. And I think Paul was interested in the gospel moving forward and he saw God using women and he saw women were useful and so he put them forward to be used. And so I think that's what we find. Um, but at the same time, he was working within this patriarchal culture um, and he was having to balance this patriarchal culture as well as solve problems within the patriarchal culture. Um, so a lot of those texts that we find um, is Paul dealing with specific problems in a church. I mean, that's pretty much what his letters are he's going through and he's putting out fires all over the place. Um, the fires often, you know, they can connect. I think Paul is pretty consistent in his theology, but at the same time, they often deal with very localized problems, such as in Corinth. Um, and so, and in Corinth, you know, we see, I think it's very clear that we can hear Paul quoting the world around them. They're called the Corinthian slogans, um, and they happen multiple times throughout, um, throughout First and Second Corinthians. And what's really fascinating fascinating to me as a historian is that the only ones that are really controversial where people are like, oh, that's not a slogan, that can't be, are the ones about women. Um, whereas everything else, they're like, oh, of course that's a slogan, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Um, so I think that as a historian, that's one of the things that's like, which are the texts that we stumble over? And why do we stumble over them? And what we find with Paul is these texts that we stumble over are often the ones that have to do with women. Um, so does that help a little bit? Do you want me it, to expand? Or? Yeah, we'll, we'll go a little uh, deeper there. You know, yeah, I love you know biblical literacy when it's like, especially if they have a lot of wealth. It's like let's ignore Paul stuff on not having wealth and getting rid of your pearls yes. and jewels and you know that you know that of yes. course is important. So so in a sense. Paul is not saying what we think he's saying. Right. I think so. Um, you know, and there, or at least the words that we see are not Paul's words. And, um, you know, there's more than like, take 1 Corinthians 14. Um, when I wrote the book, I knew that there was, you know, there's really two more valid theories for reading this. Um, and one of them is the way that I read it in the book, this, that Paul is quoting um, the, you know, quoting the, the Corinthian world and then saying this is what not to do and then refuting it, which is a pattern that we see throughout Paul's letter. The second valid theory is that it is an interpolation, um, that these, these actually aren't Paul's words. Um, they are the Corinthian words, and they were actually inserted later into the text. I think both of those are valid theories. Um, I think what matters is that these aren't, that this is not a directive from Paul telling women to be silent and only to ask their husbands at home um, and not in public. And I think one of the ways we can definitely see that is that it is not consistent with what we see 
Paul doing other places? Um, so that's always the first question that I ask people. They're like, well, how do you know? Paul's told women um, to, to be silent and to stay under the authority of men. And I'm like, well, let's go read Romans 16. <laughs> and that just, you know, it's, that complicates the complementarian narrative significantly. Um, either they have to ignore Paul in Romans 16, or they have to decide that maybe something else is going on in those passages where Paul seems to be saying, women be silent. I think probably one of the hardest parts of the conversation is for most people who already have that particular, again, I use this term really loosely, biblical worldview. Right? Yes. Um, is there's already an, uh, inability or unwillingness to critically think about the Bible. Let's take it at face value. It says what it says. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to have that conversation with somebody uh, about these things because right. it's just, it, it, to them it seems, it goes back to that, well, I can't, I can't treat the Bible that way or I can't, it's t retracting from. Mm -hmm. This is where we get into the whole arguments and infallibility and errancy and all yes. those things. So. Yeah, it's fear. Yeah. It's fear. So how... How willing uh, do you imagine most people with a particular angle on a, you know, quote, biblical worldview are open for conversations about a different way of thinking? You know, for, for, for yeah. those that read this book with an open mind, they'd see just how thoughtful and philosophical and historical and theological evaluations, uh, where, where, it has, where we've come from and how it impacts today. However, it feels like most people that are not here theologically are a not in a place to be receptive yeah. to this message or b not open to coming to the table of dialogue with others so how do, how do we how do we have those conversations about different ways of thinking so i think one of the things that has helped me do this is that um this book was born in my teaching and essentially what you got here are my lectures i have a series of courses called women in um, europe ancient world through 1200 and 1200 through the modern era. And so a lot of what I talk about in the book are really formed from what I teach in class. Um, so that's why I chose some of the things that I chose because they're the things I teach in class and I see that my students are receptive to the way that I teach about them. Um, so I think, you know, on the one hand, I did know that there were gonna be some people who outright would reject the book. Um, you know, I had no illusions about the CBMW. I had no illusions about many folk at the Gospel Coalition. Um, you know, the people who are invested the most in these power structures that subordinate women, they have the most to lose, and they are the least likely to listen openly and most likely to try to just simply um, uh, to destroy it enough so that other people won't listen. So I had no illusions about those folk. But what I have found is that because my book hit at a time that the church, the evangelical church was in crisis, um, it also hit at a time where people were reading Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Dumay and being like, oh my gosh, what have we done? Um, that I think the conservative world was more receptive uh, to here. And so even though there's a lot of outward pushback, um, I've been really surprised by the people I find who are reading my book. Take for example, um, I made a comment on Twitter during the SBC convention that perhaps uh, something that I had seen with the new with the newly elected president. Um, I said, well, maybe maybe it's time for me to send him my book. 
and he tweeted back to me that he actually already had it <laughs> and was open to talking about it. And that was really surprising to me. Um, I also found out that a pastor in Waco, who I thought would be very hostile to it, I found out that he's actually reading the book right now. And so I think more people um, who are making less noise but are from these very conservative backgrounds seem to be willing to at least read. Mm. And that, to me, is a step forward. I think we have to keep in mind that this isn't just about womanhood in the church, but equally important womanhood in everyday life and work and home. Can you give us a little framing as to how the making of biblical womanhood sheds light on this pervasive idea of women in everyday life? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, that really is the message that I've been trying to get across. And it's the message that I think is hardest for um, really hardcore complementarians to hear. People who have invested their identity, and I find this with a lot of women. You know, a lot of women reach out to me and they're like, um, you know, this hasn't been my experience. I have a very supportive husband. I've been able to do pretty much whatever I feel God calls me to do. I've, I haven't hit any walls. And, and they're like, so I think, you know, complementarianism works when you have good people. And I'm like, you know, I usually don't argue with them. I'm like, that's fine. I'm so glad that your marriage is good and that you're happy. But at the same time, I'm also thinking the, the problem, what we see probably going on in their marriage is what Russell Moore got upset about in 2006, where he said that most complementarian families are functionally egalitarian. Um, you know, it's really only when you get this sort of hardcore um, uh, people who are less who are more rigid in their thinking that I think that it becomes difficult. Um, I think it also is that women in these more places where they've never hit any walls, they also are less likely to see the damage that this Christian patriarchy that is connected to cultural patriarchy, the damage that it does to women. Um, and so one of the clear correlations that I drew in the book was the wage gap. And that, you know, we have this poll that was done um, in, by, by Roxanne Stone. She was one of the people who interpreted this poll. It was a Pew Research poll. And it showed that evan conservative evangelicals were the least comfortable with women in leadership roles and with women um, in the workforce. And then we also correlate that with the wage gap, um, where we see still today that women make 73 cents on the white dollar, on the white man's dollar. Um, and then that is reduced even more for black women who make like, I think 50 cents to the white man's dollar. Um, Latino women who make even less than that. I mean, it's really, it's, it's, the wage gap is just so clear. Um, and we find that it correlates directly with these types of conservative evangelical attitudes, which suggests that women's place really isn't in the workplace, it really is in the home. Um, and so we see this recirculation of some of the quotes that I had from the Industrial Revolution, where the justification was that women should be paid less in the workforce to encourage them not to work outside the home. And you kind of see that same circular reasoning um, that I think, and I think that's one of the reasons why we've had such a fight with the wage gap. 
This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your... CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This episode is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. Youth Theology Network is your resource for helping high school students take their next most faithful step. Their online hub will provide you with resources for and by leaders helping high school youth discover their purpose. 100 plus vocational discernment programs across the U.S. to help students explore their call and impact stories to remind you of why this work matters. Like you, Youth Theology Network is dedicated to seeing students live out their purpose, passion, and calling. Connect with us to learn more on how you can partner together to support the next generation of leaders by following us on Facebook or Instagram or by visiting youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. Well, as we've seen from recent Supreme Court rulings, that uh, Victorian age quotes from people, you know, in England really bear weight on, it is, on things for today. Isn't it so amazing? <laughs> you know, yeah, they keep pulling them up, and it's just it's shocking. You know, for those that are still holding on to a patriarchal model or even complementarianism, do you think there really it really comes down to uh, a fear of what a shift to their biblical mm. interpretation might mean for themselves, for their church, and these principles they've built their worldview on? Yes, I think that people who, who hold tightly to complementarian narratives really do believe. They really do believe that this is... Um, a God-ordained structure, and that if they vie away from it, that it will um, damage the gospel. I mean, that this complementarian narrative has been linked to the success of the gospel. Um, and you can see this in the words of the Gospel Coalition. You can see this in the words of the CBMW. You can see this in the words of the SBC. Um, and so there is this clear, so this, has, this makes people afraid 
that if they walk away from complementarianism, that they really are watering down, um, watering down scripture. And that it can lead them, you know, this image of the slippery slope, I think, uh, is a very real image that is used in um, many churches and scares people. So I, I, you know, I'm, I try to be really sympathetic towards people who are still in these spaces because I think they honestly believe. Um, and I think it is, and they honestly want to stay faithful to Scripture. So what do you think the tipping point is? I mean, we're, we're seeing out of the Southern Baptist movement just decades of clergy sexual misconduct, decades of people high up covering up those things, participating mm -hmm. in those things themselves. To me, there would be a crisis, not only a crisis of faith, if I was in that, yeah. that particular camp, if you will, um, there would be strong consideration of these are the people who taught us this is yes. these are the people that form these creedal statements yep. that we are forced to sign like, that they wouldn't view it yeah. as forced. So it, what what becomes the tipping point or is there even a, a tipping point for these things? I, I think it's going on right now. I mean, we see so many people walking away from these conservative evangelical movements. I've done a lot of conversations with folk um, who identify as ex-evangelical, um, who identify as having grown up evangelical but are no longer Christian. Um, some even have, you know, some are agnostic, some are atheist, um, but they have moved away simply because of the hypocrisy that you have just seen. I remember um, I did a podcast very early on with, uh, with a, he was probably 10 years younger than me. I really liked him. He was working within the fundamentalist Baptist world. And um, it, he saw all of his pivotal, the people who had shaped him be convicted one after the other of these um, you know, horrific sexual assaults, crimes, et cetera, and, and it broke him. And he was like this, I, I, cannot, I, cannot, I cannot believe any longer. And it made me really sad because um, this is, uh, you know, these people in power have, they're the ones who are hurting the gospel and they are driving people away um, because of their actions. And, uh, you know, I think what we're, I think what people are beginning to realize is that it's not just people behaving badly, it is the, it is the fruit of bad theology, and that theology has consequences. And so I think people, I, th I think we are at somewhat of a tipping point. I don't know if it's going to change everything, but I think we're at a moment where more people are listening and so, you know, and I tend to be an optimistic person anyway. I tell people that all the time. So I, you know, and, and part of my optimism comes from the people who reach out to me behind the scenes. I just hear so many voices, so many stories. Um, so I think, I think there is change in the water, but historians are much more comfortable interpreting the past than predicting the future. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, the last time, well... You could go back to the civil rights movement to see this, yes. this swell. But 500 years ago, when there was this much corruption within a particular expression of the church, something good came out of it. Um, it didn't mean it wasn't painful. It didn't mean it took time. It didn't mean there wasn't even infighting within those groups themselves. You know, so, um, you know, 
I, I'm hopeful. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's painful to watch and experience, especially, you know, I, I grew up in the movement. There wasn't another Baptist option for me. Right, you know? yeah. But you see the, the dismantling of institutions that once were meaningful to people. Um, you hope they turn to a different form of faith versus turning away from right. faith altogether. Um, but one would understand if they didn't. Yeah. Um, your book um, emboldened a lot of overdue conversations about misogyny and toxic masculinity within the evangelical movement. So I wonder, and I know we were talking about this before, it's hard to believe it's only been out a year. Right, I know. <laughs> um, you know, but uh, since, since its release, what have been some of the uh, impactful ways that you have can directly link back your research and your writing within a particular church or a particular denomination, oh, a particular movement of people? I think one of the, I was, um, I was talking at a seminary uh, relatively recently, and it was an egalitarian seminary, and it drew, I'm uh, not naming it because I don't want to, the people, um, it drew a lot of people who had been involved in a very large conservative um, church, an Acts 29 church, um, and they, and I, there were three women in particular who came up and told me stories about the impact of my book. And one of them told me that her, she actually had been, um, she actually was Baptist, she was SBC, and she had been um, taken off the membership rolls when she enrolled in the seminary because it was egalitarian. Um, but she gave her mother a copy of my book and her mother started a book club at that church, and all of the wives of the leaders read the book, and then they got their leaders to read the book, and their church, right when she talked to me, was actually, um, had voted to elect female deacons for the first time in their history. Wow. And that was such a, I mean, that was, I was like, that's amazing. Um, and she was put back on the membership roll. Um, for, I mean, so I mean, it was, she was so excited by watching that movement. Um, so I think there are, you know, and I, I get reached out to by a lot of individual churches. Um, in fact, one of the things I'm working on right now is a free video series that goes along with the book that is geared towards churches um, that we're going to be putting out um, in the fall, so through Brazos. So I'm excited about that. But it's because I've seen I've seen change happening at individual churches, and I think that's the change that's going to push us forward. Yeah. I know I've talked to you about this before, and I, we had Kristen on the podcast too. And, yeah. You know, there's so much. You could write so many volumes on this. Um, you know, so the good news for you is there's many books ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, for, for far too long in the evangelicalism, the voices and writing of men were the only thing that was amplified. That's exactly right. But, but the rise, really, of, you know, folks like Beth Moore, now who has subsequently departed from the Southern Baptist Convention, people like Rachel Held Evans and Sarah mm -hmm. Bessie and Jen Hatmaker and Nadia Boltz-Weber and Kate Ballard and Kristen Covey's Dumay and, and Beth Goes Allison on, Barr. Yeah. Uh, you know, the voices of women are shaping a new conversation mm -hmm. and reexamining uh, a reexamination re of womanhood and, and Christianity. What, what gives you hope about the work, your contemporaries and your work, um, as it's reshaping the landscape for uh, equity in the church for, for this generation and for the generations to come? So um, 
As a medieval historian, I know the power that women in the past have played on shaping the church and their voices. And um, on the one hand, while patriarchy has always been a part of Christian history and it's always limited women's voices, at the same time, we can look back and see how powerful their voices were and the impact that they still were able to have. So I'm thinking if we are at a moment where women really may be able to move into um, more and more Christian denominations in egalitarian roles and truly have the same type of leadership and their voices be listened to the same as men. I mean, that gives me so much hope for the gospel and for the church moving forward. Um, and that will be a first in church history. You know, I think actually already the freedom that a lot of women have in denominations is unprecedented. And so I think um, we're already, I think looking back on this time, you know, 100 years in the future, looking back, I think we're going to be able to see patterns where women are having some of the, you know, most significant impact on theology. Um, you know, I think, for example, about black women uh, theologians who, you know, I said this in the making of biblical womanhood, if we had only been listening to their voices, we would not be in this mess right now um, about complementarianism. Um, and, and their voices are finally getting into mainstream seminaries and people are reading them. Angela Parker's book, you know, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? That's being used by seminaries. Mm -hmm. And that gives me hope um, that they're really, that people are willing to listen, even if they don't agree, that they're willing to read and listen, which, you know, I remember even 15, 20 years ago, um, pastors at conservative churches would not even read theology or books written by people that didn't come specifically from their tribe. And now we see much more expansive um, reading and listening. And so I, I think that is a hopeful pattern. I want to kind of here at the end, come back to Paul, but come to Paul in order to get to Jesus. That's always a good way to go. Um, you know, for most conservative Christians, whether they admit it or not, woo. Um, Paul's letter bears more weight and authority mm -hmm. than Jesus' words and, yeah. and, and actions. But seriously, Jesus was a, the first a true feminist, for heaven's sake. I mean, he emboldened women. He, he gave them leadership roles. Um, he made them a central part of his inner circle. He empowered them to preach the most important message the, right. the world ever heard. He's not dead. He is risen. So how do we, as church leaders, think about shifting people's biblical worldview so based on Paul rather than, you know, how do we shift it to its more Jesus-centric yeah. worldview? Well, I think part, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit cynical, and I don't know if you know this, but my area of expertise is sermons. That's what I, I teach. I teach a graduate class on medieval sermons, and it expands to like the modern era, and we talk about sermon construction, and we talk about patterns in sermons. And so if you, you know, if I look back at the medieval sermons, one of the things that, you know, for better or for worse, they read all scripture through the topology of leading to Jesus. Mm. So everything pointed towards Jesus. All of their, you can think about the Jesse tree, which I, you know, has become more popular now, um, although not exactly in a medieval way, but nonetheless, but the Jesse tree, which pulled all of the Old Testament stories to show how it led to, um, to the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary is often at the top of the Jesse tree, and then the Christ child in her lap. And so this, uh, you know, this imagery that the whole Bible 
points towards Jesus. And I think we have lost some of that in the way that we preach. I mean, if you think, if you look, and I haven't done this, I've been tempted to do this, um, but if you like take all of like John Piper's sermons or you take all of, you know, some other really popular um, preachers today and you go through and look and see how their sermons are structured, um, what we see a lot of sermon series are focused on things like the family and how to order your household. And they're focused on these types of social and, you know, and more conservative like biblical worldview, um, how to discipline your children. I mean, you see a lot of that um, instead of having this more, and that leads them to the Pauline letters more so than to the gospels. Um, so, I mean, I think a real easy way is to shift how we preach and maybe start not preaching so heavily on the letters. Um, the cynical part of me wonders if part of that shift is because the letters are shorter and they're easier to kind of pull through and preach through altogether. And so I can't help but wonder if maybe that's one of the reasons why they've been chosen. Um, but you know, if we think about sh it, shifting patterns in what we preach and what we teach on and the Bible studies that we put out there, uh, I think that can help shift that focus um, a little bit. So that might be one really practical way is just shifting what we preach. You were telling us a little bit about the video series earlier, but what else are you working on? What should we yeah. be looking out for? So um, when I wrote The Making of Biblical Womanhood, I didn't intend to do anything else at all. Um, and, uh, but uh, circumstances in my life at Baylor enabled me to step out of my dean role and into an endowed professorship. Um, which has opened up the door for me to have more time for research and writing. And so I have agreed with Brazos to do two more books. We're calling it a trilogy. Right. Um, I'm really excited about it. The next one is called Becoming the Pastor's Wife. And it's going to tackle female ordination, which I really wasn't able to do so much in the making of biblical womanhood, and tie that to um, the rise of the role of the pastor's wife, which I'm also very interested and invested in. Um, so that's the second book. And then the third book is called Losing Our Medieval Religion, The Cost of Forgetting History for Evangelical Christians. And it will still deal some with, with women and gender, but it will also expand out to what it has cost us in our modern theology and practice by um, dismissing medieval Catholicism. I don't know if you just read the, the giddiness on my face of <laughs> knowing, <laughs> knowing what's ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about both of them. I've, um, I've written bits of both of them already, and it's just they're really, they're, they're really fun. The Losing Our Medieval Religion is going to be um, a little different from the other two books, but it'll, anyway, so I'm also looking forward to doing something slightly different. Well, you've joined the two for club, but I've seen reasons to join the three for club. <laughs> it's very rare. I think Brian McLaren's the only one that's been on the podcast four times. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully we can get you back on. We'll see. Life is long. <laughs> Our guest is Dr. Allison, Beth Allison Barr. The book is The Baking of Biblical Womanhood. Learn more about her writing and work at BethAllisonBarr.com. Uh, Dr. Barr, it's always a, a joy to talk with you, and thank you for your incredible uh, prophetic voice that has not put a spotlight, but a blazing sun on the injustices of, of the church. Well, thank you for having me. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Have you ever wanted to study the life and teachings of Baptist ministers whose work in civil and human rights changed the world? Have you ever wanted to read and watch other speeches given by Dr. King? 
Are you concerned of the way King's life, teachings, and legacy are used by contemporary political and religious leaders? Are you a local pastor or church leader and want to take an evening course at a seminary? Apply today to audit the life and theology of Martin Luther King Jr. at Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, taught by Dr. Lewis Brogdon. Visit bsk.edu backslash mlk to learn more. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 